Turn with me to 1 Timothy 4. And the last chapter that we covered, uh, we were speaking about qualifications for elders, pastors, bishops, deacons, deaconesses, pastors' wives. And that's all really in chapter 3. Very good uh, foundation for leadership. And today we're going to go from, we're going to transition from being to doing. This is what we should be, and now this is what we should do as leaders. Uh, and we, as we go into the Word, the Word today is a very poignant portion of Scripture. It's going to challenge maybe some of our deeply held beliefs, some of our strongholds, some of our uh, denominational uh, traditions. Uh, you may, as we go through the Word today, you may read that and say, wow, I was always taught in my church that we should do this, but this is what God's Word says. So th- I think we're all going to be challenged today in some respect or another. And it's just that portion of the scripture that we're in. That's the beauty of God's word. We get the bitter and we get the sweet. Sometimes we need to be convicted. Sometimes we need to be corrected in our thinkings. And oftentimes we're encouraged by the word. So it does have both. And anyone who paints one side is not doing God's word justice. We need both. Okay, so verse 1. It says, the Apostle Paul says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer." So he starts by saying, now the Spirit, now the Holy Spirit expressly says the following. Number one, pay attention. This is priceless counsel from the Holy Spirit, and he's not going to mince words. Number two, it wouldn't be good for any of us to be on the opposite side of what the Holy Spirit says. And three, now that the leadership is established, young Timothy, Pastor Timothy, this is what you guys should be doing. A few things we're going to look at. Um, they're going to happen in the latter times. What are the latter times? Well, the Apostle Paul spoke about a day as he would leave, as he would be martyred, and he knew that was coming. In Acts chapter 20, he spoke about that uh, savage wolves would rise up, not from the world, but from within the church, aggregately. And every good minister needs to combat that false doctrine because it will poison a church. So the latter times really start with the waning of the apostolic age and really are into, into our time as well in the church age. Now, as we read these, we're going to see, oh, that religion or that denomination believed that. Well, a few hundred years ago, they did that. And then we're also going to see applications for us today. So this is really through the church age that these things have happened and are happening. So number one, what will happen? Some will depart from the faith. Now, I need to go into the Greek because, again, this will cause some to say, oh, I, I always believe this. So I have to use the scripture. I have to use the Greek grammatical text that Paul is speaking in, in the Hellenistic world, and I will back it up with other scriptures and quotations from Jesus. Some will depart from the faith. Now, the Greek grammatical text is a reflexive application. If you say, I washed myself, or I dressed myself, that's reflexive. I did it to myself. Departing from the faith is an application of removing oneself from the faith. There's a desertion involved. Okay? No one can steal your faith, that's clear. However, you can make choices in life. 
Some of them are damnable choices. We all have those opportunities as free moral agents. Second Peter 2, he was speaking about the false teachers, but the application can be made really for anyone. A person who's in the faith, who knows, who has the knowledge of salvation and willingly departs and becomes re-entangled in the world. Peter says the latter state is worse than the first. It'd be better if he didn't know the way of righteousness than to know it, be familiar with it, and depart as a dog returns to his own vomit. So it, will, it said it. Now some will say, but I was taught in five-point Calvinism, the fifth point, perseverance of the saints. Well, let this challenge you. Five-point Calvinism was a man-made doctrine. It was a reactionary theology based on some of the things of Arminius and uh, some other... So this went back and forth between the Arminians and the Calvinists, and they kept getting further apart from the truth in order to counter the other person or the other uh, side. The church, the Bible says, is going to get worse, not better. Now, you'll hear preachers. You'll hear some that'll talk about how Christianity is going to grow, and we're going to take back America, and we're going to take back Europe, and we're going to conquer, and the Lord's going to come back. That's false teaching, brothers and sisters. We read this in Thessalonians about the great apostasy, the departure. Jesus speaks about when the Son of Man comes back, will he even find faith in the earth? Um, Revelation speaks clearly about the state of the church in the end times. So it's going to get worse, not better. All the Bible writers back that up. Number two, giving heed or applying oneself to deceiving spirits or imposters and demonic doctrines. Where? In the world? No. Paul's not concerned about what's going on in Hellenistic culture. He's not concerned about Roman culture. He's concerned about what's going to happen to the church when he leaves. These demonic doctrines will get into the church. And we've seen them. We, we do see them. Now, this should be frightening. Because there's someone in this room, I have no doubt, that has a book at home, in their library, in their car. It's a best-selling Christian book. And it's being inspired by demonic Spirits. Oh, that's, that's scary. How could you say that? Well, it should be frightening. 2 Corinthians 11.14 tells us that Satan disguises himself as an angel of, of light. He doesn't come with horns and a pitchfork to scare us. He's very subtle. He's very beautiful. He's very soothing, very comforting. That's how he comes. And his ministers, deceiving ministers, right? they come as ministers of righteousness, but they're not. You may look at that Christian book, and on the cover, they have nice white teeth. They have a beautiful smile. They have the picture of success, of course. They want you to buy that book. Be very careful. I'm going to name names today, and just, I'm just going to go by what they say about themselves. T.D. Jakes is a very popular Christian Bible author. He's a modalist. He's a Sibelianist. Very, very strange and anti-biblical Ideas about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit by his own admission. William Young wrote The Shack. He's a universalist. We don't need Jesus because in the end, everybody gets saved anyway. Not true. If that was the case, we wouldn't have to preach the gospel. And I'm going to get to Joel Osteen. (laughs) Three, speaking lies and hypocrisy. Why? Read the text, because of a seared conscience. Now, if we look at the Greek word for seared, in the Greek, it's kautorizo. Sounds familiar? In the English, we get the word cauterized from. Their conscience is cauterized, according to the scripture. 
Now I know, or I know personally, and you may know, that if you've burned yourself bad, you get nerve damage. If you're cauterized or the burn is deep enough, there's a numbness. And maybe some of the nerve cells grow back and they regenerate, but for, for the meantime, you can't feel. There's no feeling. So a seared conscience is someone whose conscience is just so far gone that they can't distinguish right from wrong anymore. And thus, they're teaching this garbage in the church. Now, if we look at sin, in the case of sin, there's a progression. And we need to be careful, too, as believers, because sin is all over our society. Abercrombie and Fitch, every year, try to push the limits as far as they can by taking pictures of scantily clad children, putting them on uh, covers of their catalogs and, and billboards. It's disgusting. We have been desensitized to sin. We're being cauterized. You can't log on to anything in the computer, even if it's your cable news. And there's a section about sex, sexuality. So this cauterization is the devil's idea to get us to be, become so insensitive to these bad things that we just continue to partake. And then where does it leave us? Attitudes. There are some in the, in the church that believe they've arrived. They don't have to come to prayer. They don't have to come to Bible study. They don't have to show up for anything. Because they're a point in their life where they've arrived. They've plateaued. They're insensitive to the fact that they still need to be taught. When you become unteachable, you are in a dangerous place. I'm glad that I get to be ministered by other pastors in this church, and I sit back and I listen to them teach. Because I'm blessed by their teaching. I'm still teachable. We all have to still be teachable. It's very important. Crude shows. I hear Christians openly discuss uh, the shows that they watch that are just profane. Right? Are we becoming insensitive? You know, listen, we're, I, don't doubt, I don't believe that anybody here is going to start now going outside and start teaching heresy. However, there is a parallel. We might not be bad as those guys, but we can still become cauterized. We can still have our conscience be, be numbed, be anesthetized to where we don't see right from wrong anymore. Now we progress to these demonic doctrines. Number one, forbidding to marry. Now, there's nothing wrong with being single. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul was single. And he was a blessing to the kingdom because he can do so many things as a single man, not being concerned about a wife and a family. However, forbidding. It's the teaching that forbids one to get married because it's more spiritual to be single. That is nowhere in Scripture. So what's wrong is a teaching that mandates it. Haven't we seen problems with uh, certain denominations that force their clergy to be single? All the lawsuits that are paid out, when you don't allow a man to, to marry and raise a family, it's that forbidding aspect. That's a problem, and it's, it's condemned in Scripture. Two, to abstain from certain foods. Now, there is nothing wrong with altering your diet, due to diabetes, allergies, other health issues, that's fine. The problem is when there's a forbidding of it, abstaining. You know, uh, I remember the church that I came from, this juicing craze came around. <laughs> Some of you are laughing. I remember that. I like to juice. I mean, I just don't have the time. It's very time-consuming. I think it is good for you. But the teaching was going around in a Bible-believing church that you're more spiritual if you juice. Yeah. <laughs> The pastor had to address it at least, I remember, three times from the pulpit. And one of the times I called up and said, this stuff is getting out of control. So he dealt with it. You know, new converts were coming in and they were told that they had a shop at a certain health food store. 
And they had to go to a certain chiropractor, and they had to eat certain foods. And that was the way, and, and it just was false teaching. So it can happen anywhere. Um, fad diets come and go. Being a vegetarian is good. Some people need to be vegetarian. Some people need to eat meat because they have anemic issues, and they need their L-carnitine. Uh, but we don't force others to do what we do. What food has no bearing on spirituality. Jesus said, it's not what goes into a man's mouth that defiles him. It's what comes out of his mouth, because that reveals the intents of the heart. But this stuff goes around. And honestly, this is why the world looks at the church and says, they're weird. Sometimes we are weird. Sometimes we do. What about the church that handles venomous snakes? And right, you know, we're, not, we're not getting a snake tank anytime soon to start playing with them. You know what I'm saying? That's just crazy, and it's just, I don't know where to get, to get this stuff from. But food, number one, is to be received with thanks, and it's to be sanctified by the word and, and prayer. Now, do you ever wonder why you say grace? You know, um, the Apostle Paul spoke about this. In his days, they would have all, all these temples to all these false gods, and they would take the meat, they would take the animal, they would slaughter it, and then they would drip the blood, and they would do their rituals and sacrifice it to Zeus or Apollo or any of those guys. And the Apostle Paul said, just eat the meat. Don't ask any questions. You know, so they did all that weird stuff. Your God is bigger than their God. Except if somebody's going to stumble and they're watching you and they're a new believer, then you might want to refrain. But we say grace. Lord, thank you for this food. Help to nourish our bodies. Sanctify it by your word. That's it. It's clean. It can't hurt you, no matter where it was before. Verse 6. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. But reject profane and old wives' fables, and exercise yourself rather to godliness. For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. Now this may be a play on words here, but he says nourish. Now, Pastor Vinny has often, uh, from up at the pulpit, said, feast on God's word. Man, when you're really hungry, I tell you, my wife is a good cook. And when I come home and I'm really hungry and I smell her cooking, oh, I just can't wait to feast on what she's made. It's, It's awesome. But he's saying here to feast. Nourish yourself by feasting on God's word. There's a spiritual application. Sometimes we're hungry spiritually, and we need to be filled with something that's going to nourish us. Feast on God's word and instruction. Certainly not the focus on temporal things, especially not food. Now, the man of God, it says, he says, nourishes himself. We need to be nourished too as leaders because I can't pour into any of you if I'm not filled. If I'm an empty vessel, if I've got nothing to give you, then you're not going to benefit from anything that I say. So, Timothy, don't forget, young pastor, you need to be filled up as well. Nourish yourself. What we see here is two things. Number one, a good minister combats false doctrine, and he instructs the body in the truth of God's word. You know, churches get in trouble when they try to be on the cutting edge. They strive with, for earthly things. They do these fad Christianity. They read books from the pulpit instead of reading the scripture. I always said that if you want to be on the cutting edge, you better be careful, because eventually you're going to get cut. Right? Trading God's word for other things. There is, um, I know that there's a pastor locally that apparently has been listening to our messages and he's been inspired in his church to bring back the word into his denomination. Now, I'm not inclined to call him up and say, hey, buddy, don't steal my material. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, 
To me, that is awesome. As a matter of fact, in the 60s and 70s, Chuck Smith, the founder of the Calvary Chapel movement, uh, all the pastors in Orange County had a meeting and said, boy, that new Calvary Chapel movement is really growing. Maybe we should bring the word back into our fellowship. And he was excited for them. It, it sparked a revival in Orange County. And why? Because of the word. There's an acronym called Keep It Simple Stupid, KISS, you know? We think that we, bigger is better. We think that, you know, we have to do all these things. We strive in the temporal to bring the spiritual, and it just doesn't work. It doesn't cut it. Verse 7, but reject profane and old wives' uh, tales or fables. Now, in the 19th century, men and women, there was an explosion in cults. If you ever study cults, pseudo-Christianity, you'll see that in the 19th century, tremendous. Old wives' fables. Number one, the Bible's not politically correct either. Madame Blavatsky and Annie Besant came up with the theosophy to poison the church. Uh, Ellen White was the progenitor of the Seventh-day Adventist. Uh, Mary Baker Eddy, Christian Science. These were old, literally old wives' fables that were continued to speak about until they became doctrine. And, the, and it's true. If you say a lie enough times, eventually people start believing it. The Bible says God helps those that help themselves. It doesn't say that in the Bible, but everybody believes it because it's been said so many times. There are concepts, but it doesn't say that. Um, in the 19th century, there was also uh, Joseph Smith, Charles Taze Russell. They started these things as well, cult explosion. Okay. Other profane tales. And he says to Timothy, the apostle speaking to a pastor and saying, listen, get this stuff out of the church. It's problematic. Other tales, uh, I heard this. Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene and they had children and they even wrote a book about it. You know, some fantasy. What's really sad is that there are too many professing Christians that want to hear something new. It's not just from the pulpits, it's from the pews as well. That they're not, sta- they're not happy with God's word. They're not happy with the truth. Oh, I, I, did, I, didn't, I heard something. Oh, that's interesting. Let me follow that rabbit trail. Do your homework, do your research, know why you believe what you believe, but there are some that just, they're not happy unless they hear something tantalizing or scandalous. You know, that's profane when it comes to God's word. Seven and eight, he says, exercise yourself to godliness, and that's the cure. Um, The mystery of godliness we, we heard about in chapter three. And the apostle Paul uses a temporal example that they could understand to bring out a spiritual truth. And and what am I talking about? This exercise. Hellenistic culture was very serious about their sports, probably far more serious than we are. Yeah, yes, it was a Roman empire, and yes, they did beat the Greeks. However, the Romans left much of Hellenistic Greek culture in place because it worked. Governmental, language, um, you know, some cultural issues. They conquered, but they left a lot of the stuff in place. They used the Koine Greek, which the Bible was written in. The word exercise in the Greek is gumnazo, where we get the word gymnasium from. You see the connections there? Now, specifically or literally, gumnazo meant to train naked. So you talk about serious about your sports. Yeah, this was their thing. And what they did was they trained hard for their uh, Pan-Hellenic games. They had the Isthmian games, the, the Nemean games, the Olympiad, and the Pythian games. And they went all throughout the, the Grecian Empire. And they trained very, very hard for these things. Okay? What is he saying here? He's saying that the true Christian should be as serious about our spiritual training 
as the Hellenistic culture was about their Olympic training. And the question is, are we? I mean, you think about the grueling um, practice, the sweat, the, the, the tears, the, 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 the healing, the trying to beat your former scores. Are we that serious spiritually as these, this culture was physically? Question we need to ask ourselves. How's our culture really changed? Remember uh, a few decades ago, it was the, what was really big was jogging and aerobics? Remember that? <laughs> now what's changed? Now it's ultimate fighting competitions, CrossFit, the Navy SEALs workout, um, these day-long extreme sports. I see it all the time. I mean, grueling. Don't sleep. It's just amazing. They're completely spent and exhausted when they're done with some of these physical pursuits. Now, I would say this. It's important to keep in shape. And I do want to go off on a tangent here because I do believe that it affects our culture. So I'm going to make a little something out of this. It is very important to stay healthy. It's important to treat our body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. However, body, mind, spirit, you realize the body is the only one in its exact form that's not going anywhere when we die. It's going to become worm food. It's going to break down into the same basic 13 elements that God used to breathe life into that when he made Adam. It's going to go right back to the ground. We're going to be part of the ecosystem. But sometimes we do things with our bodies where it's almost body worship. Spiritual is, is forever. Are we, are, we that mu- are we paying attention to our spiritual lives? Are we, are we paying attention to what God says about making our mind proper? You know, focusing on the right thing in our minds. But are we just focusing on our bodies? And I think the word here is disproportionate, right? Um, now, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, I know I got some fitness people in this church, and, and I would put myself in that category. I like to go to the gym. I like to do physical things. I like to, you know, at 44, wonder if I'm still as strong as I was when I was 24, but I'm not. <laughs> and it's sort of like a Sisyphean endeavor. Remember the king who was banished to roll the stone up the hill and it would fall down? And this is what he would do for eternity. Of course, it's mythology. But the, the word is disproportionate. Now, I don't think that you would be very pleased with me if I spent more time in the gym than I spent studying and in prayer. What would that do for you? You know, I've got to keep myself in check as well. I want you to, when you get home, if, for those of you that are really into your bodies, there's a guy, and I want you to put it in a search engine. His name is Nick, N-I-C-K, Vujicic, V-U-J-I-C-I-C. How many of you have heard about this guy? Yeah few of you. This guy has no arms and no legs, and the things he can do will blow you away. And he's a great evangelist. I mean, it'll bring tears to your eyes. And maybe to some of us who are too focused on ourselves, it might put us to shame a little bit. Guy's very, very powerful. But let's just not focus on the physical. What else do we do as, as believers, where we take a disproportionate amount of time away from our spiritual endeavors and put them into worldly endeavors? Could be Things that are uh, an overfocus on money, self-centered pursuits, looks, our businesses, you know. We have to ask the question, what always comes up when I have to make an excuse for not committing? In everyone's mind, something should pop up. Am I giving a disproportionate amount of time to those endeavors? And some of them may be innocuous, they may be even good. But we're so focused on them that we're not focused on the things of the Lord. You know, there are some that are not living in victory in the Christian life, and they're tempted, and they blame God. Well, we know what the Scripture says, God is perfect. So if we're blaming God because we're not in victory, maybe we should look in the mirror and look at some of these pursuits 
because it isn't his fault. Verse 9. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Verse 10, two great points he makes. Number one, and I'm just gonna bring these words out to use some more synonyms. He says, we are fatigued, we work hard, right? And we're defamed and reviled. Why? Well, I just, again, I don't know why I torture myself, but I, I listened to another one of Joel Osteen's teachings, right? And these are his own words. Why we don't live in victory. Because we're not praying enough. Because we don't have enough faith. Because God wants us to be wealthy. Because God wants us to be healthy. Now, what does that do to the average person who's, tr- who's make, trying to make a living through life and, and struggling? And they hear that message. And they try. And they try to do what he says. And they don't get rich. And they don't get well. And their boss is still a jerk. Right? And they're still struggling with their bills. What they do is it makes them feel like a failure. See, he's a man who presents a one-sided story. That's why when he goes up there and he waves his Bible and they sing that song, when he's done with that, he puts it down. Now it's a prop. It's not used anymore because he can't use it because this type of stuff comes up. The Apostle Paul is saying he struggles. He's fatigued. He's worked hard. He's reviled. He's been ostracized by the cult leaders, by even some in Christianity. Right? Why? Because he's living the Christian life. That's why. When you become a Christian, it's rewarding, but it doesn't become wonderful. It doesn't become, I mean, I love my life. Every day I wake up, I'm excited for what the Lord's going to do. It's, it's a mental attitude, but it's based in God's word. But that doesn't mean I don't have challenges. It doesn't mean that I don't have people giving me a hard time. Trust me. You know, it doesn't mean that I, I run into a situation and I'm perplexed and say, Lord, what do I do about this? It's rewarding, but it isn't, it isn't all happy and, and buttercups in the field. It's not like that. So the Apostle Paul, because of trusting in the living God and living out his faith in real life, this is why he's going through those things. So keep that in mind. So if you're a Christian and you're struggling, welcome to the club. It's okay. You're allowed to be frail. You're allowed to fail. At some, you're allowed to fall down. Let the Lord pick you back up again and again and again. It's okay. This is what I don't like about some of... This guy probably is a great neighbor, if you could live in his... afford his development. But um, he's a terrible Bible expositor, so... The second great point he makes here, and this is amazing, every verse has these nuggets, and this is God's word. He says, because we trust in the living God, who is the savior of some men? No, he's the savior of all men. Second point I want to bring up here is the third point of of five-point Calvinism. Limited atonement. And it teaches that Jesus only died for the elect. That he didn't die for the sins of the world. You're reading the Bible wrong. You don't understand it. Not according to this, because he goes on. Not only is Jesus the Savior of all men, but especially, especially of those who believe. i got to go to my, my grammar again. The word especially in the Greek is a superlative of a primary adverb. So if I could exaggerate... I would say, we are very, 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 very blessed. So Jesus is the Savior of all men, but the truth is that many will not trust in him as their Lord and Savior. That's just the fact of life, free will. Not everyone's going to make the same decision. So he died for all the sins of the world, but especially of those who believe. 
because we have trusted in Christ as our Lord and Savior, because we've come into the fold, because we've humbled ourselves, because we've, we've knelt down at the foot of the cross, especially, we, we get a special blessing because we've received of that sacrifice, but the rest of the world wants to reject it. What a shame. But this is, this is good for us. Now, it is very important, and, and sometimes when you, when you come up here and you, you bring things up and you, you, you know, you, some will say, well, can't we just all get along? We should be able to, as long as we're playing by the same playbook. If you've got a bunch of football players on the field and they're all playing by different play, playbooks, there's going to be chaos on the field. They're not going to win anything. You know what I'm saying? As believers, we need to follow the same book. And if we're not, that's where the, the strife comes in, inside the tent of Christendom. I'll give you an example from the, for those of you who know, I'm a beekeeper. I wore my bee shirt today. (laughs) There is a pest when you're a uh, beekeeper. There's several pests, but one of them is called the small hive beetle. It's this little three millimeter beetle. And he gets in and, and the guard bees are supposed to push him out, right? Because he can defile the hive. Well, maybe if the guard bees get lazy and you say, there's only one beetle, why can't we all get along? Right? The beetles bring other beetles in. And before you know it, the hive, they, and they just multiply. The hive is filled with beetles. Then they start to lay eggs. And when the eggs hatch, there's, there's a slime, there's a larva. And what happens is where the, the cells are, where the honey's supposed to go, now these slimy beetle larvae come out and they, it stinks, it's oozy, it's, it's unsanitary. And if the bees allow these beetles to proliferate to the point where they take over, the bees have to abscond. They just have to leave. And there are some hives where you lift up the cover and it's disgusting. It's a slimy mess. False doctrine is the same way. Why can't we all just get along? Because we can't. Because the Apostle Paul said we can't. Because Jesus said we can't. Because Peter said we can't. John said we can't. Jude said we can't. James said we can't. The reason being is because we can't allow, the, why, why follow anything? Why follow God if we don't know the truth about him? Does that make any sense? I mean, who's following Zeus or Apollo today? Do they exist? Right? And if they don't exist, why does anyone follow them? Because we need to know the truth, and the truth needs to be maintained. It's important. Verse 11. These things command and teach. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. He says, these things command and teach. Now, as we go through the scripture again, if something is said, the Apostle Paul says, don't let this happen, don't let that happen. Be careful you do this. If we believe that the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit, then these things were probably happening. So Paul had to correct it, correct it address it for the, for the sake of the health of the church. And Timothy seemed like he was having some trouble, but Paul was very stern. Now, I, I say this often, oh, we always love the Apostle Paul, don't we? Oh, I love Romans. I love Ephesians. If the Apostle Paul was here today and he discipled you, you wouldn't love him very much, trust me, because he was tough. These terms, if you, if you take them collectively, a lot of them are Greek military terms. Stand up, soldier, the battle's not done yet. You know, be strong. You know, the, the leadership is no place for whiners. You've got to keep going, because weak leaders only allow problems to fester within the church. 
And some of you might have come from churches like that, where there were splits, divisions, schisms, gossip, false doctrine, and before you know it, they just closed their doors. Verse 12, he says, Let no one despise your youth. Just be an example in all these things. You know, so here's the deal. Some, some have looked at this and, and said that uh, Timothy probably was in his 30s. Uh, they look at different, how, how far he was on a mission field, about how old he was when the Apostle Paul took him under his wing. So you have a pastor probably in his 30s, and they looked at him, and they saw his youth, and they probably, ah, this guy, what does he know? Right? Don't we judge people? We look at somebody by their appearance and make a judgment until we know them. We shouldn't do that. But unfortunately, that's part of the sin nature of human beings. Um, I, I know I've seen this. <laughs> With some, you just can't win. Um, some will say, well, we don't want an older pastor. He's too old. We need somebody to come in and bring excitement. We need a young pastor. We need someone who's energetic. That same person, when a young pastor comes in, will say, oh, we need somebody with wisdom and experience. We don't, we don't want this guy wet behind the ears, so you can't win. What's really neat is I'm kind of 44. I'm right in the middle. So don't give me a hard time. <laughs> Whatever. I felt like throwing that in there. The Apostle Paul says basically to Timothy, you can't please everyone, but be an example in word. Know the word. Teach the word, live the word. In conduct, let the word permeate your behavior. In love, love should be our primary uh, goal in everything because it was for Jesus. That's why he came to die for our sins. In spirit, you know, don't neglect the spiritual. The spiritual is the most important, especially if you're a leader in the church. In faith, well, if we don't believe, then there's no sense in having a church. So faith is is very important as well. And in purity, let all these things affect your behaviors, and your, your daily lives. Verse 13, he says, Till I come, give attention to reading, exhortation, and doctrine. So reading. Did you know that there was an early, well, it goes actually back to the Jews. A Jewish tradition is when they would get together in their synagogues. When the Levites would get together, even before that, when the temple went up, they were supposed to teach the Israelites. They were supposed to publicly read the word. Well, that carried through when the temple was destroyed into the synagogue. And then when the church came, most of the early church was Jewish, they would read the word in the church. Why have we gotten away from that? Why is it so hard? To, you know, if I talk to other pastors, like, well, that's all you do? You just read the word? Yeah, and it's exposited. You know, that's what we do. We, we want to be enriched in God's word. That's what they did in the early church. Why do churches get away from that? I don't know. In exhortation. Exhortation is, is an interesting word. It's like a, an excited um, encouragement, but stern. Come on, soldier, get up, pick up your rifle. The battle's not over yet. I, you know, I'm concerned about you. I, want you, to, you know, I don't want you to just lay there. Something could happen to you. Let's go. Exhortation and indoctrine. And all these things together are a discipline. And this is probably why the Apostle Paul gave the nutrition example and the exercise example. Because like the Greeks and the Romans, we also are very concerned about our physical appearances, uh, how we feel, what we eat, what we take into our body. But Paul's saying, don't neglect the spiritual. That actually should, should go above. That should be your primary concern because you're eternal beings. What you do now will affect you for the rest of your life and for eternity. And verse 14, he says, don't neglect the gift by the laying on of the hands. Now, there was a... Um, 
a tradition, but it was, you know, there was scriptural backgrounds in the Old Testament stuff, the laying on of hands, the anointing of oil. So the Apostle Paul sees the young Timothy, and the young Timothy is interested in, in you know, being a believer, reading the word, going on missions trips. So the Apostle Paul at some point and the Presbytery, the other older men in the faith would lay hands on him and they would pray and God would give them revelation about young Timothy that maybe even he couldn't handle at the time. If you're a believer, you have a spiritual gift. This is very clear in 1 Corinthians. God has endowed you not only with physical abilities and mental abilities, but when you're born again, you're endowed with spiritual abilities. And some of you may say, gee, I don't know what they are. Pray about it. Find a pastor, an elder, or somebody that you can trust in leadership. And maybe if you don't know, ask them to pray about what your spiritual gifts are. But the Apostle Paul was saying, and listen, every leader can get into this rut. And I'm going to speculate here. Is it possible that Timothy was trying to do it a little bit in his own strength? He was saying to Timothy, don't neglect the gift, the laying of the hands by the presbytery. Now, the spiritual gift. Maybe he was running too far ahead. Maybe he was in so much zeal and excitement and newness and um, confusion. He was trying to do it a little bit too much in his own strength. So keep that in mind. If you don't know your gift, pray about going to someone and asking them, if you're not sure, to pray about what your gift may be. I will tell you the truth. It takes me hours to put a message together. Yes, you know, not, the, all the teachings aren't knocked out of the ballpark, trust me. But, um, you know, this is where God has me right now. And it is a gift, but I will tell you that my primary gift really isn't studying for a message, because this takes work. My primary gift is evangelism, and it's amazing. I could be raking the leaves, and somebody walks by, and I don't have a Bible, I don't have anything. I could be out at the supermarket, and all of a sudden, I sense from the Lord to talk to someone. I can pull scriptures out of the air, you know. I can analyze what they're saying and, and see where they're coming from, and it, it's not me, because it's, it take, it's effortless, it's easy. That's my primary gift, evangelism. So it's, it's very exciting to find out what yours is, and when you do it, it's really exciting because it's, it's easy, it's fun, it's a joy, and it's from God. I mean, you know, that's the best working environment you could possibly ask for. Verse 15. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. What are we giving ourselves entirely to? Is it God's word? Is it the things of the Lord? Is it being concerned? Is it praying? Or what are, we else, what are we giving ourselves to? What comes to mind? What am I presently involved in that's hindering me from doing these things? Maybe I need to deal with it. Maybe I need to pray about it. What's consuming me? 16. Last verse. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Um, Chuck Smith uh, recounts a story, a blizzard story, great story, and a person is in a terrible blinding blizzard and they can barely see in front of them, they're freezing, the snow's piling up, and they just, they're ready to give up. And they just kind of ready to drop down on a knee and just lay down and end it all. But as they come up, and they're ready to drop down, they stumble across something in the snow, and they reach down, and they see it's a body. It's another person, and the person is still alive. So the initial person who's walking and is ready to give up picks up the person, brushes them off, puts them over their shoulder like a fireman carry, and starts walking with that person. And within 10 to 15 feet, they see a cabin, and they get to the cabin, 
They knock on the door, they both come inside, and they save that person. Pretty amazing, isn't it? Sometimes we're exhausted. <laughs> Sometimes we're tired. Sometimes for us, maybe we're self-focused. I get self-focused at times, and I, I whine, and my wife says, I don't want to hear it. And she's good like that. But when we're helping someone else, and there's another person involved, now all of a sudden, we save ourselves. In saving another person, we can save ourselves. Now, it's just an illustration. But the, but the point here is that I would say that the best thing that ever happened to me spiritually was becoming a pastor. Now, I will tell you, when I first became a pastor, I'll admit to you, I don't think I was completely ready. I don't think I was, you know, men that I respect laid hands on me and, and believed that it was time. I was honest about my shortcomings, and they did it anyway. I just think they wanted to get me out of their hair. <laughs> but the bottom line is it, it, it's fulfilling. I mean, I have a purpose beyond my wildest dreams. I've seen things in this church. I've seen things in seven years that just blow my mind because the Lord is in it. You talk about a purpose. We all want a purpose, a career, or this or that, something to make me happy. When you get past the temporal plane and now access into the spiritual plane, man, it is just something like you. I can't explain to you. You know, it's just not possible. So in saving others, in saving others, we save ourselves. Right. You know, I, I've seen stories and just dramatic stories about rescues and the person who's rescued is, you saved me. And the other person recounts how that and doing that, they were saved. They were given a sense of purpose in life. So this time of the year, while many are talking about a New Year's resolution, I'd like to talk to you about a new life resolution. Yes, this is about the apostle Paul, one of the greatest apostles that ever lived, wrote half the New Testament to a young pastor, Timothy. However, if we are so removed from God's word that we don't see that there's an application for every one of us here today, we're not listening with spiritual ears. You know, some may admit that their devotion is stagnant. You know, some may admit that they left their first love. You know, what's interesting is that uh, the apostle or, or uh, Timothy is ministering to the Ephesian church. Not long after that, in Revelation, Jesus speaks to the church of Ephesus and says to them, you've left your first love. So there was some, definitely some problems in that church. We, some of us may have been saying for years, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna. While the rest of the world is making New Year's resolutions, let's look at a new life resolution. While the rest of the world is probably going to have all their commitments, or the majority, broken before the end of January... Can we commit to committing? Well, that's a scary word sometimes, committing. Can we commit to praying? And all it is is, oh, I have to pray. No, you don't. I get to talk to God. That's what praying is. I don't have to pray. I enjoy speaking to him. Can we commit to feasting on God's word, serving him, being more discernment with, discerning with some Christian media out there? Right? My prayer today is that we don't waste another opportunity at this milestone in finishing strong. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word.